Hello, and welcome to Top Class, the OECD's education podcast. My name is Henry, and I work in the OECD's Directorate for Education and Skills. Today, we're taking another look at how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted education across the world. Our listeners will have seen that in many countries, schools were forced to close, meaning that students had to continue their schooling from home. But not all countries followed the same strategy when figuring out how to keep learning going. At the OECD, we collected a number of case studies from all over the world that describe how countries dealt with the disruption to schools. Uh, And we call these education continuity stories. And we managed to collect around 30 different examples from different countries. So today's conversation is going to look at how different countries approached this problem and what we learned from collecting those stories. We'll also be looking in detail at examples from the United States and Japan. So joining me to discuss this is Stéphane Vincent-Lancran, Senior Analyst in the OECD's Directorate for Education and Skills and the person in charge of the Education Continuity Stories Project, Ryoko Sun Eoshi, Professor of Comparative Education at the University of Tokyo, and Earl Phelan, founder and CEO of George and Veronica Phelan Leadership Academies. Thank you, all of you, for joining. Uh, Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me as well. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Um, So, Stefan, starting with you, you actually oversaw the collection of, of stories from around 30 countries about how their education systems coped during the crisis. Can you tell us what your main objective was in doing that and and maybe give us a few highlights of the kind of things you observed? Yeah, so what we really wanted to do was to get countries and people to learn from each other and so document all the interesting initiatives that were taking place to ensure education continuity during the COVID, both at the governmental level, but also, you know, at the more local level and on a variety of topics from social and emotional skills to academic learning to the teacher training, etc. I think one of the few uh, observations I would start with is really one of the things we've discovered is um, the importance of the digital, the digital divides uh, during the crisis. The fact that, in fact, uh, it was much bigger than we anticipated for even in uh, high-income countries. Um, and also the fact that, you know, even so we are doing a lot of work and a lot of policy interest currently is on AI, um, you know, blockchain, etc. all these uh, very advanced technologies. What we have noticed during uh, the COVID crisis is really that a lot of the digital solutions that were used were actually much lower tech solutions, you know, and actually in many countries, they just resorted to TV education, radio education, and with a very innovative use of other types of, of resources. And I think that the second point I want to make, you know, and what we have observed is actually a spirit of innovation, you know, the, the uh, lot of partnerships, public and public, public and private, a lot of hurdles that were lifted thanks to the focus that the crisis has created. And so a lot of actually goodwill and interesting things that have happened and that we hope will continue to happen when the crisis uh, is over. Earl, you know, the U.S. has been hit particularly hard by the virus, I think I think we can say that. And on top of that, the schools that you happen to oversee, they the students there are already in difficult circumstances. So can you first tell us briefly about the schools you work with, just so we, we have the context, 
and then tell us about the particular challenges you faced during COVID um, and what did you do about it in your context uh, and what were the associated challenges? I'm sure, you know, Phelan Leadership Academies or PLA goes into kind of some of the worst schools in the United States and helps turn them around into the places of learning that that all children uh, deserve. And so when COVID hit, um, we had three immediate problems. Uh, The first was um, hunger and malnutrition. Uh, Many of our children, uh, about 93% are, are eligible for free or reduced price lunch. And their two kind of strong meals a day and a snack come from the school environment. So we had to first and foremost make sure that our children who were now at home and their families um, had good breakfast, good lunch, and uh, something uh, to snack on later in the day. So that was our first piece. The second thing we focused on, which probably should have been the third, is we then went to academics We were very worried because our children are, in many cases, two, three, and four years uh, below grade level. Um, We felt like we needed to immediately help them um, get up the learning curve. And as Stefan said, because our families uh, certainly were on the other side of that digital divide, um, we started out with paper packets. Uh, We then quickly moved to creating uh, kind of um, 30 ELA and 30 math uh, short videos done by our teachers uh, that they could watch on their mother's phone or on their father's phone or what have you. And then the third phase was to actually get uh, Chromebooks and iPads in the hands of our scholars set up a learning platform and have our teachers uh, teach live. And I say that should have been third because the third thing we did was actually um, really attend to the social emotional needs of our our scholars and that should have been second. Um, Our scholars are already kind of living in in communities that are are ravaged by violence and malnutrition and and many other factors. Uh, Loving kids, beautiful scholars, uh, but facing a lot of factors. And uh, this COVID piece really, really made it hard. Already living in kind of small and overcrowded homes, um, being sometimes with mom's boyfriend who you may or may not like, it just really added uh, pressure and stress on our families. And that obviously um, was also on our scholars. So we should have focused second on our scholars' social and emotional needs. Fortunately, many of our teachers, we have a thousand uh, educators around the country, they were a little faster than the organization was in realizing, hey, we've got to keep our scholars connected. We've got to make sure that we're touching base with them once or twice a day. Um, And then they set up just great social networks where our scholars really had a chance to stay connected even though they were virtual. But those were the three kind of things that we needed to to do. And we we tried to, like many others, do the best we could in meeting the academic, the social, and the um, health needs of our students. Yeah, we'll come back to the social and emotional aspect of things uh, later on. But that's so interesting, such a massive challenge that you had to overcome. And you know, it's making me think back when I was at school, I have to say that the best part of school for me was, was that social emotional aspect. It was being with my peers. And I kind of did feel very sorry for, for the students that had to, well, that were deprived of that. Um, and in fact, Yoko, uh, you are an expert of holistic schooling. So this kind of this whole package education. Uh, And you actually documented an an initiative in Japan to address that issue uh, during COVID. Uh Can you tell us about that and and the impact it had? First of all, um, the Japanese curriculum includes periods which target 
social and emotional collaboration, social skills, resilience, and the non-cognitive aspects of the child. So it is part of the curriculum. So when uh, school closure closure forces um, uh, teachers to focus on, on the subjects, they know that they are missing a large portion of the official curriculum. See, so uh, again, this period, which is called Tokubetsukatsu, and it's Tokas for short, includes like classroom meetings and student councils and clean, uh, and uh, school lunch, including food education, school events like uh, sports day and stayovers and club activities and also basic, basic living habits like um, washing hands. These are all part of the official curriculum. Uh, so teachers are motivated to do these things even during the pandemic. Uh, so I think that and this curriculum is in the uh, national curriculum standards. So schools around Japan will be motivated to do it. So uh, what I wrote about in the OECD piece was one version of an adaption to this pandemic of the, the, this part of the curriculum. Uh, and the government guidelines have also continued to encourage schools to uh, take, of course, take steps to prevent infection, but also to keep on doing uh, these activities which target social and emotional now, in Japan, schools closed in March and then opened from June. Uh, so I talked to uh, elementary school teachers in Tokyo, which is the hardest hit district, uh, after the schools reopened and asked what they were doing with the social and emotional part. And they were basically looking at the rate of infection in their community and then discussing among themselves, collaborating, and also discussing with the PTA and then with the children. So we had dozen, a dozen teachers come together to talk about their experiences and all their schools were doing something different uh, because the situations they saw in their school were different. So the only uh, common thing about uh, what they were doing was that they were avoiding the three C's. Know, the crowdedness, uh, being crowded, close contact, closed rooms with poor ventilation. They were taking all those, taking all those um, precautions not to infect anyone, but then adjusting the parts of the social and emotional curriculum to the needs of their children and, um, and the school. Um, so again, what, you, what I wrote in the OECD piece uh, has been going on in different versions in schools around the country. And the one that I wrote about uh, was in Kumamoto, which was hit by the earthquake, which experienced a, a school closure situation before. So during that period, uh, they had emphasized uh, moving on to online learning. So they were ready for to go on again to uh, expand their online uh, learning well, their uh, apparatus uh, to uh, the children again. So just to clarify, Ryoko, then does mm -hmm. that mean that in general there wasn't that much school closure closure in Japan? There, is, there has been no school closure since June. Wow, okay. So, yes, because now the, the, uh, the importance of the school is so uh, high 
in the uh, the minds, I think, of the uh, the government, also the society, that they would ask. And also, there is a consensus, I think, that the clusters with children do not occur in the classroom, but in situations where children have their masks off and are talking to each other, uh, maybe in the clubs. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting to see how how the policies differed across the countries. And I think the one thing that everybody realized was the role that school plays, not just for children, but just in the kind of normal functioning uh, of society. Um, Stefan, you know, we've just heard two different case studies, well, a little bit of them from either sides of the world. But does what Earl and Ryoko, uh, what, what they're saying, does that sound familiar? Were these issues felt in all countries that you looked at? Um, did countries come up with similar solutions? I mean, countries came up with a different solution, but also the situation were, were different because in some places, you know, we you had a very long school closures. In some countries, school have not reopened at all yet, you know, so that they've been closed for months, uh, you know, like for, in India, for example, you know, that's... Uh, but perhaps one thing that I wanted to come back to, so the nutrition aspect that El has mentioned is a very important one. And actually that was addressed in many different countries in different ways. And it's interesting because it's not something that would come necessarily to your mind first when you think about schooling and education, but that's a very important dimension. So in Brazil, for example, that's, you know, they've changed the way, but they've really made sure that people who benefited from uh, uh, nutrition at school could continue to get it. In some countries, they've expanded it to the family, the entire family, and, and not just the students themselves. So that was a big problem. Second point he mentioned was around the, the, the worksheets, for example, that's a start. In many countries, they've started by actually doing a kind of a diagnosis of what the available infrastructure was and what and how they could reach as many students as possible. And so that's one of the reasons why um, the, the, I would say the most advanced technology solutions were a relatively small aspect of it. And so worksheets were part of many of the strategies. And I would say in general, we can say that in most countries, including high income countries, there was a kind of a multimodal response to the crisis and they were offering simultaneously uh, education continuities through a lot of different means, worksheets, TV, radio, online, etc. You know, so that was really a big Thing. And perhaps the final thing I wanted to say that's related to social and emotional uh, skills and learning, that has been also something that we've seen in, in many places. So, for example, as part of our continuity stories, we've documented some arts-based programs that were trying to address uh, that question uh, uh, in New Zealand. So here it was meant when students would go back to school, how they could actually deal with it. And it was totally inspired with, you know, you mentioned that uh, you know, the, the story was whether there has been the, uh, the tsunami uh, uh, before. And actually it was a lot of things related to natural disasters and how they've, they've, they've coped with it. In India, we had different types of programs. Latin America, we have a lot of stories showing how um, teachers were actually trying to implement new curricula that had moved towards more 21st century skills approach and so included as well uh, the social and emotional learning in addition to being focused more on, on active learning. And so how they actually used, uh, try to engage the students and, and, and keep the, the teachers engaged with them. So I think that's been one of the very big 
problem that people have tried to to address everywhere. You know, it's really trying to keep remotely the students engaged in their learning, and for that, making sure that they would also address their realities and the social and emotional realities that they were experiencing, given that, I mean, especially for uh, the more disadvantaged categories of students that they, in many countries, were actually more likely to have uh, well, families suffering from COVID themselves or to have lost their employment and to be facing a lot more difficulties. Even so, one thing I remember from Ryoko's uh, story is really that in Japan, uh, you had families from a lot of very different backgrounds that were actually uh, uh, facing similar, struggling as much, you know, and that was a very interesting point that she made. We've talked a lot about the nutrition aspect is really interesting, I think. Um, and social emotional skills also keeps coming up. It seems to me that, that suddenly families were thrown into the mix a little bit more than they previously were before the crisis. It kind of makes me think about you know, is there a renewed role for parental engagement? Um, I'm interested to hear from Earl what he thinks of that. And did you, you know, in your uh, circumstances, Earl, did you see the relationship between parents and schools change during these difficult times? Uh, yeah, there's been a, um, a radical shift in the relationship between parents and schools here in the United States. I mean, first and foremost, I think parents uh, had a deep sigh of relief saying, whoa, this role of being a teacher is a, is much harder than maybe um, one might have imagined. So I think there's been a great appreciation around, amongst parents uh, for teachers. So that has been one direction, um, which I think things have elevated. The second is uh, there's been a forced um, kind of um, connection between parents and teachers. So if teachers want to reach children, they have to, in most cases, particularly with our elementary and middle school scholars, they have to build relationships with parents. And, you know, our schools have been pretty good at, at being intentional about doing that. But a lot of schools um, in the United States and a lot of schools, particularly in uh, the lower income communities in the United States, have almost had an arm's length, hey, parents, you stay away. And that had to change because the, because the scholars were at home. And so if you wanted to reach them via phone to see how they were doing, you wanted to tell them when they could come up and do a drive through to for, um, you know, kind of meal pickups, you had to build relationships with families. So I think that's actually been and a real positive thing that I've seen that now there are much uh, deeper relationships. I mean, at some point our parents were saying, hey, hey, I have three kids. You don't have to call so much, you know, so that we had to slow down at one point. But but the positive part was now there really has been a deeper relationship and a deeper appreciation from both, I think, parents to, to teachers and teachers to parents. Yeah, I just when you mentioned uh, learning from home there, I just... I just had images of, of students kind of isolated in a room trying to study alone. I know if it had been for me, I wouldn't have been able to do it. I just wasn't driven enough. So I kind of question both for Earl and Ryoko, but I'll go to Ryoko first. What's remote learning as an experience for the student actually like and how effective do you think it can be? Ryoko, what do you think? Well, again, because schools opened quite quickly in Japan, uh, the period of remote learning was not that long. And also Japan is, I think, quite behind in, in uh, remote uh, learning because for a long time, teachers were reluctant uh, to adopt you know, uh, online learning versus face-to-face. -face. 
they preferred much more to be with the students and talking, whatever. And so uh, what do they learn? Right now, I think there is a big push toward um, remote learning backed by the government. Uh, And I think this pandemic has really pushed the move toward using online learning uh, for the children. Now, a lot of the schools are being given iPads more than before, so they can prepare for another uh, wave or another pandemic, uh, which might come in the future. And so we are seeing hybrid kind of uh, learning situations uh, where the iPad uh, or uh, online learning is used to avoid crowded situations. Bringing it back to the actual learning, like the learning experience for the, the students themselves. Oh, what do you think it was like? Did you hear from the students about it and how they fared? Yeah, I, th- I think it was a real hard um transition for our scholars. And I think it's probably even a really harder transition for our our teachers. And so, you know, uh, when it first happened kind of in the March, April uh, time period, I I think learning was very, it was, it was not teaching and learning were not very good. We did not do a very good job. I'm not questioning people's efforts. Everybody was trying, but it was a new um, a delivery mechanism. So should you have your cameras off? Well, and then you kind of lose the, the human interaction and the social uh, experience. Do you shut scholars' mics off or are they just responding in chat? And if they're responding in chat with one word answers, are they learning the vocabulary that you'd want them to, to learn as they answer a history question or if they answer a, a, a literature question? Um, so that was kind of the, the early struggles of how do we make sure that our families have the bandwidth um, and would been very blessed to get kind of to one-to-one technology in all of our homes. We were at uh, 8% of that had technology and had uh, devices in the home when we started. And now we're at a one-to-one piece and we realized, hey, if a parent has three children in the home, uh, just having one Wi-Fi device isn't going to get you there. You you won't be able to have scholars on camera. You won't be able to have scholars on on mic. Um, And so that was uh, kind of a challenge at the beginning. Then the second challenge was candidly, just the logistics. I mean, we have kindergartners, first graders, second graders, even some of our older scholars, and then just getting the right login uh, was a problem. And so we had to stand up a help desk in multiple languages, uh, 12 hours a day so that our, our families could get whatever support they needed, even just to get into the system. Then the third uh, barrier that we faced was um, where our youngest scholars, the parents really needed to be learning coaches. We needed a parent or some adult, it could be an older sibling or it could be a grandparent who would um, make sure that the five-year-old was, you know, logged in it nine o'clock for their first uh, for their community time and homeroom. And then if they got a little tired, um, they had encouragement from the grandparent or parent, not that they do the work. And we often had that as well, where you can hear parents in the background giving answers or older siblings giving answers um, 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 in a positive way. They weren't trying to cheat. They were just trying to be encouraging. Um, but they, we did need them to be present. And so we kind of outlined, here's what a learning coach 
does. Um, and again, it's it's just, and then we have to learn how to bring things down in bite sizes. You, you just can't have the same level of attention. I mean, school is such a place of so, social interaction, such a place of love, such a place of connectivity. Um, if you come into one of our schools, we can tell if you've had a had a bad night and we'll take the time to, to address that. Being online is a little bit different and it's a little bit sometimes harder to have, see that the scholars' shoulders are, are scrunched or they're looking at the ground as opposed to their general kind of uh, happy or, or upbeat demeanor. So it's been a lot of transition. And I think as time has gone on, as Ryoko said, you know, everybody gets a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better where now I feel like it's still not the ideal. I want our scholars back and many of our schools are actually are coming back, particularly our younger children. Um, but it's it's so much better than it was um, in March and April when we started. Yeah, that's really inspiring. And um, I'm trying to think about the future a little bit, how what the next steps might be after all this is over. And I want to ask all of you, really, do you think any of these measures or anything that's happened over the last 10 months or so in schools should be brought forward, should be kept, you know, as innovations? And let's hear from Stefan first. We haven't heard from Stefan in a while. Stefan, what do you think? Well, I hope actually that some of there will be a reflection and that some of these things will actually be continued in, in some way. So one thing that I found that was a very uh, interesting, you know, at the OECD, we've always said we need more partnerships, public-private partnerships, public-public, private-private, etc. Actually, we've seen a lot of spirit of collaboration between all the different actors of education during the crisis, and I hope this is something that will continue, so both within schools and school communities, but, I mean, more broadly speaking, and partly that we think in a new way about uh, the resources that should be available to everyone uh, in terms and the digital learning resources in particular. So I think that that should be something that we, we should learn from the, from the crisis, that uh, what is the kind of the minimum learning infrastructure that uh, everyone should, should have access to. And that's a very important one. Another aspect I would mention is actually we've, met, we've talked about uh, 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 parents, and I think it's interesting to think of you know the, the role of parents in in the current uh, or the past education system. So I'm not saying that we should continue to rely so much on parents to assist their students, etc. But perhaps actually rethink of the role of parents in the actual education, not academic education, but ag- education of of their children, in terms of what they do, what they can actually uh, uh, share with them. Uh, um, so that they make actually progress. Uh, um, you know, if that's how it used to be in the past. In fact, you know, you were uh, growing up in a farm and then you would actually learn from your parents a lot of things that related to what they were doing professionally, etc. you know, and, and perhaps there is more to to tap that, that on them, you know, that we, we don't do as much right now. And actually the last thing, and that would be interesting to hear what... Uh, and Ryoko think about it is really what we've learned in terms of the organization of schooling. So one of the things that appears very strongly is how indeed, you know, school is an important place for social interactions. Uh, and at the same time, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, as Ryoko was saying, also, you know, sometimes there are few things that are really good in terms of the online. So one thing which is good when you do remotely is that you also have to actually bring much more agency to your education in some ways, you know, that you have to, to you're trusted to be more independent, to do things. So 
what kind of organization of schooling, you know, uh, uh, could we envisage that is not exactly the coming back to the previous situation, but that we can learn from what actually worked, you know, during during the crisis. So should there be more um, different ways of organizing the time that we spend uh, in a school? Um, what we do when we are in prisons compared to when we work independently, etc. And so I think there is a very interesting probably reflection to, to have around that uh, in the future. Ryoko, what do you think? Yes, I agree. I think um, it has made people think much more of the role of the school and that it's not just about subjects or studying and maybe something more like um, the social and emotional aspects. Um, and also, I think it has made people realize how many actors have been actually involved in the development of the child, uh, the community, the parents, and also the other children. And But there is a role, I think, for online learning. And so, um, again, you know, I think it's made people much more, uh, at least in Japan, it's made people much more sophisticated about how online and face-to-face can be combined for the best interest of the child. Well, you have the final word. I'd um, just yeah, underscore what Ryoko and, and Stefan said, and the only parts I'd add are, uh, or compliment are, we're thinking differently about time, uh, and it's forced us to think differently about time. So summer may be the first time that all of our children can come back in, and we're excited that now summer is a time uh, for uh, education. And then the second piece is, it has in some respects leveled the playing field a little bit in the United States, where now my children have access at home to technology. And a lot of the state tests are are done on a computer. And it was such a disadvantage for my scholars to not have that regular uh, use of computers. And now they have that. So I like how it's um, balanced the playing field uh, slightly. Thanks so much. So really, really inspiring stories there and, and quite enlightening uh, insights. So th- thank you all for, for joining. That was That was really fascinating. And thank you to everyone for listening. If you'd like to keep up to date with the OECD's work on education, you can follow our education Twitter page, which is at OECD EduSkills. And if you would like to learn more about the education continuity stories, that's the case studies from across the world about how countries dealt with COVID school closures, you can find those on our blog page, which is www.oecdedutoday, that's oecdedutoday.com forward slash coronavirus, and you will find them all there. Thanks again, and until next time.